Welcome to the Partnernomics Show, where industry thought leaders discuss the hottest topics in partnerships, ecosystems, and innovation. The Partnernomics Show is brought to you by Iolite Solutions, a product incubator specific to Salesforce. Now here's the host of the Partnernomics Show, Mark Brigman. All right, so welcome back to the show, Mr. Bob Moore. Good to see you again. Great to be back again. I couldn't wait. <laughs> How are things going? Uh, it's it's been a wild ride, a uh, fun couple of months here. Uh, it's good to see the uh, the weather turning out here in Philadelphia. It's uh, it's going to be going to be a great summer. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hey, so I'm just going to jump right in it. Let's uh, let's start hammering out some different questions. I really enjoyed uh, the readout that you guys did a few weeks back and uh, provided a lot of good information out there. So I've got uh, some questions lined up that I want to hit you with. Fire away. All right. So question number one is wrapped around compensation. That is. The average compensation for partnering professionals in the U.S. is 177 grand a year. Question: Is that too high, too low? Is that kind of what you expect? I mean, what was what was your guys's take from from that number? Yeah, I mean, we what's cool about this report, and thanks for mentioning. Yeah, it's the State of the Partner Ecosystem Report. You can get it on our website, uh, crossbeam.com. Just head to the resources section. It's it's one of our ebooks we release every year. Big comprehensive report. We, we pull hundreds and hundreds of partnership professionals. And this number is like the number. So you take everybody that's in that survey, you just kind of average it out, right? Which um, it's a fun, it's a fun number to kind of grab headlines and, and attention, but it's almost one that you have to double click on in order to answer the question that you're asking. Because what's really going on here that is so fascinating is we we see the evolution of not just hey, how much money can you make if you work in partnerships? But like, what does your career journey look like as someone that is building a career in partnerships? What are the steps along the way? And then where are your opportunities to, to really, you know, increase your income potential over that journey? So, um, you know, the evolution from a, a partner manager to a director to a, a VP to someone that might be a C-level or, or otherwise higher is one that we go through. And I think the trend we see is unquestionably compensation is rising in all of those categories. But it also tells this great story about how, you know, partnerships is not uh, what, it, what it once was in a lot of places, which is kind of like either a transitory role between a, a journey from, you know, marketing to sales or something like that. And it's not something necessarily just on the fringes where you've got a small pool of people that are ambiguously titled that are kind of doing a specific set of work. It's a career. Uh, and, you know, because of that, uh, 177K, great. I don't think that's too high. I don't think it's too low. Uh, I think that it's a very representative place, particularly within the tech industry, for uh, you know a compensation band to kind of have as a as a mid mark, and we've got data points out there of VPs and leaders of, of partner groups that are making you know 300k plus a year if they're really performing. Uh, sometimes uh, substantially higher when you factor in equity compensation and bonuses and, and things like that. Um, and we see people still kind of entry level partner manager roles in some businesses where you can kind of come out at a standard like you know college graduate you know somewhere between forty and eighty thousand dollar a year starting point and. What's exciting is to be able to put those dots on the line and kind of see that journey happen. So the, I think the good news and the takeaway here is partnerships are by no means falling behind the rest of the tech industry. If anything, they're accelerating and starting to be at more of a peer level with counterparts of the same titles in a, in a sales organization or other part of the business. Hey, Bob, this uh, 177 or the compensation that was in the study, was it, is it with like full compensation? Did it include bonuses and all these other sorts of things or is it just base salary? 
Yeah, I think that is a that's like a, a W-2 number. So it wouldn't include equity uh, or kind of fringe benefits or the, the cash value of, of uh, other benefits. But I think uh, cash plus bonus is, is factored in there. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's just like you said, I man, I think partnering has finally really arrived as a full-blown profession. And as you mentioned, there's opportunities for people to get in kind of on the lower side where maybe they're just managing partners or something to kind of get their foot in the door all the way to, to becoming advanced professionals where they're uh, setting up new strategies. They're going out and finding partners, evaluating those partners, contracting, putting the deals in place, negotiating, and, and doing the, the very, very complex full breadth of partnerships. And Obviously, I mean it, it. It brings millions and millions, tens of millions, you know, into the, to the into the right size company. So definitely, lots to lots to be made there. But yeah, it's it's great to see that the numbers are there to to really continue to draw people into this profession. Yeah, and I'll, before I toss to the next question, I'll throw in one more uh, like thing to look out for next year uh, as we look at these trends, which is it's exciting the rate at which we're seeing other supporting roles that are there specifically to help accelerate partner efforts. And by that, I mean folks that are working in partner ops and ecosystem ops, becoming more and more of a commonplace title inside these orgs, especially as you get into you know, partnerships having their own technology stack in a lot of cases. It goes way beyond just like old school PRM initiatives. Um, the connectivity between the partner tech stack and the rest of the revenue organization gets really crucial uh, and the ops to support that comes in. And there's a whole other career trajectory and salary banding and journey that people can be on. So um, I'm actually at the SAS Connect conference at the end of April. I'm giving a talk on, on that exact subject and partner ops. Uh, if, if you're in San Francisco, certainly come come check it out. Uh, but we'll be, we'll be talking a lot about that. Coming up. Awesome. Um, but uh, hey, we're talking a lot about success. I want to talk about failure. Uh, <laughs> Um, this isn't data from, from our report, but you know, there's, there's studies out there or anecdotal data that you can find where it's not hard to find somebody uh, who's willing to tell you, hey, most, uh, most partnerships fail or you know, uh, a really high percentage of partners in a channel program really don't provide any value. And it's really your top 10% of partners that end up driving home you know, all, of the, all the take home. Um, what's your take on that? Like, why, why is that the case and is there any way to address it? Yeah, man, I think uh, well, we, we definitely spend a lot of time working with our clients addressing this question. It's, it's kind of that Pareto principle, but I think even goes beyond that, it's not the 80-20 and what we mostly see is it's, you know, sometimes it's the 90-10 or, you know, to, to that extent. But I think, you know, just in general, I think it's the approach. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about Crossbeam and what you guys bring to it. And that is, you know, most uh, partnering programs that I see, especially those kind of focused in the channel side, focused on sales, focused on revenue generation. It's all about getting the biggest net you could possibly find, throwing it out there. Anybody that you can get to sign up your, you know, sign your click through partnering agreement to become a referral partner, to become a whatever partner, they, they automatically become a quote unquote partner. But what you find six months, a year, two years later is that you end up in this case, you end up literally with hundreds of partners, uh, 70, 80, 90% that are providing no value. And so what we try to stress with people is be very intentional uh, with, with your programs and, and really get diligent and clear on who is a good partner, who is a great partner, how are you aligned? And only Pareto principle, 20% leads to, you know, 20% of your partners leads to 80% of your, of your value. Why not just focus on partnering with the 20 percents? <laughs> just try to focus on those 20s. And uh, just by being, I think, more strategic, more diligent and using tools 
by Crossbeam and others, you have a better opportunity to do that. Even there's, there is a cost to having a partner, um, even if they're just sitting idle. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're still sucking a little bit of life out of your company and it's, it's not a good practice. Yeah, get there's a soapbox. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, I think it's partly about incentives and it's partly about systems, right? Like the, there's a lot of uh, partner programs out there that get started with the best of intentions, but then in the early years incentivize KPIs, like how many partners do you have or how many people can you get registered? And like this focus on kind of these vanity metrics that sit at the top of the funnel um, it may exist partly because that's the only thing you really can measure in the early years of a partner program, but then you do end up in this situation where you've got the maintenance burden of a very long, long tail of partners and the ability to really just execute against like the head of that uh, power law curve. Um, but the crazy thing about power law curves is even if you had way less of a long tail, uh, and you just zoomed in on that part, usually it still looks like a power law curve, right? Like you take away, uh, like their top 20% is always gonna be your top 20%. Uh, and because of that, there just becomes this question of uh, how can we just elevate the entire baseline level of the entire population of folks? And you can only do that with systems. You can only do it by figuring out processes and experiences and interactions that will scale without human input needing to kind of give white glove treatment to every new partner that comes in the door. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, I don't think Crossbeam is the, the exclusive be all end all way to accomplish that, but I think it's evidence of, you know, kind of a, uh, a next generation of technology advancements that's hitting the, the partnership space that actually allows people to do that and allows them to say, hey, this one partner we spend no time with way out here on the long tail, actually the magnitude of opportunity that's sitting latent in their sales pipeline is way more exciting than this one that we spent half our time with. Uh, and let's elevate these. Let's make sure that we've got, if we're gonna have a long tail and that's the nature of the beast, let's make sure at least we have the right company sitting at the head of the curve so that we can make the highest high points be as elevated as they can. Uh, and I think it's only with data, it's only with systems um, where, where that's gonna happen. Yeah, it's gonna be exciting to see us uh, just as a as an industry, as a group of leaders to, to significantly improve those numbers. Yeah. Um, I've got another question I wanna fire at you. Play it on me. And so that is, has COVID cost, uh, caused us to rethink events and kind of specifically around virtual? Do, I mean, how do we see that evolving? If I'm not mistaken, I think that might've also been another piece of your report that, that you were asking folks in your polls. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's really fascinating to look at this data because I think we can all we can all relate to the way in which these questions have been answered, which is kind of like people are uh, happy that they don't have to get on planes as much and they're excited about being able to get value out and experience events in a virtual way at a higher volume. And, you know, there's a lot of arguments that it's great for uh, accessibility and it's great for equity and it's great for people kind of being able to uh, incorporate this into their careers in a more natural way. Uh, but then, you know, you look at the next question in the survey and people are have so much Zoom fatigue and so much screen time fatigue that the actual perception of value of what people are getting out of these events is, is much lower than in-person events. And it's frankly just, you know, this is, this is human nature, right? It's like if you are physically isolated in a location where uh, you're surrounded by people, giving you social proof that this thing on stage is interesting and you can look at them applauding and look at them engaging and networking with each other. Some combination of, of FOMO and just like social instinct kicks in and you get more done, you make more connections, you learn more when you're in those environments, but the cost is higher. You got you to get on an airplane, you got to buy a ticket. Uh, and it, what we're seeing now is 
I think if you looked at it in late 2020 or early 2021, you'd kind of see this bias toward like remote events of the future and everything's amazing. I think what you see now is we're on the tail end, kind of the fatigue is setting in and you see a lot more skepticism around it and you start to see in-person events coming back. And I think where we're gonna end up is uh, again here in a place where just like the pandemic has accelerated our journey into a stable state where two things are allowed to be true at the same time. Uh, which I think a lot, you know, it's very, it's very tough in, in like debate context uh, for people to allow that, that to be true. But it's like remote events are great for a bunch of reasons and in-person events are also great for a bunch of reasons. And we should probably have both of them. Uh, and trying to do hybrid is probably hard and flawed in some ways. And, uh, you know, we'll need to grapple with the, the various trade-offs there. But, um, you know, for our part, you know, Crossbeam, we do a steady stream of remote events throughout the year. We participate in remote events that other folks throw, but we're also coming back live this year. I mean, we've got Supernode, our first uh, ever community and customer conference. It's happening in Philadelphia, May 17th and 18th of this year. Uh, we're doing it fairly small. There's probably around 250 partner professionals that'll come. Uh, we just announced a big slate of speakers. It's, it's going to be a sold out event, and it's going to be kind of our first dipping of our toe back into this world. Uh, and I think we're going to learn a lot, but one of the things we've seen from the community in general is that the demand to bring these in-person events back is unquestionably there. Uh, and I think there's a lot of pent up momentum and excitement around that. So, uh, it'll be, uh, look out for the state of the partner ecosystem next year. Cause I think we're going to see a lot of this stability really, really kicking in. There's no doubt that there's no replacing in-person connections. I mean, we'll never be able to, 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 to replace that experience. But to your point, uh, you know, different people have different priorities and different levels of being able to be there, like just even physically being able to be there just because of scheduling. But I think uh, one thing that we have definitely seen over the last couple of years is just a, a massive increase in capabilities and technologies. I and mean, I just think of just using Zoom and some other solutions years ago relative yeah. to the ease and stability of using them today it's it's light years better now and just even other platforms uh in that space so no doubt we've 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 improved that where i think we can make both of these be true yeah in person and virtual they're both kind of better and, and yeah uh, look I, I got married over the pandemic on hop in uh like, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my first choice right but uh what was really really nice is that we were able to have so many people participate virtually, you know, frankly, like using technology that was built for B2B conferences, but it turned the breakout rooms were kind of like wedding tables, right? It turned out to work great. Uh, and yeah, again, that the pandemic being a forcing function that pushes technology uh, development and also the adoption of technology more rapidly than it would have otherwise, like we end up in a better spot and like, you know, never say never on, on replacing in-person completely like the there's plenty of memes and jokes around the metaverse right now, but you know, fast forward another 10 years and I don't know where we're going to be, uh, but it's hopefully it's I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. All right. Next question. Let's reset the timer. Yeah. Uh, question for you on innovation. So uh, we, you know, we talk a lot about these ecosystem driven or ecosystem focused organizations. I'm wondering how, a ecosystem focused organization does innovation differently than a more traditional uh, organization that might not have, you know, kind of that, that ecosystem DNA. 
Man, this is one of the topics that I totally geek out on. Totally love, love, love uh, the topic of innovation. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're getting ready to launch a course with Nathan Furr, who uh, wrote The Innovator's Method. And uh, man, just a fascinating book and just a great framework to use. But yeah, I think whenever it comes to innovation, I think the, the process is the same, mm-hmm. but I think the mentality is different with ecosystem focused companies. So what does that mean? I think the traditional business and being at Sprint for 13 years and other organizations, the traditional business says, how can we build this? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the default approach, the de facto approach is thinking organic first of how we'll build it. Where I think an ecosystem focused mentality or ecosystem focused business immediately thinks of what partners, what assets, what capabilities are outside of our company walls that yeah. we can leverage to make an, an exponentially better and more powerful solution? And so, you know, I think we say that partnering is a culture. And I think that's a piece of it is, is thinking about partnering first, you know, as, as your approach to building new solutions, selling new solutions, doing market research, R&D, those pieces, thinking partner first as opposed to organic first yeah makes sense i i uh there's this quote that i love uh where uh it's been said that there's only two ways to make money in software bundling and unbundling right like these these big uh big waves uh like sine waves so was that a was that a mark andreessen or i'm trying to remember who said that there's there's like an og business thinker that has coined it i think mark andreessen's kind of repopularized it and, and brought it back up but uh uh, yeah, I think we're in, you could argue that we're kind of in this phase of like the great unbundling, right? You look at my, the companies I started before Crossbeam were in the data analytics space. And what we've seen happen in the last decade is these monolithic business intelligence platforms that used to do soup to nuts, the entire journey of the data point from your backend systems to the charts and graphs you email around has been completely deconstructed into the modern data stack, right? Which is data warehouses that are cloud-based, like the Snowflakes and BigQueries and Redshifts of the world, ETL platforms that move the data, like the Fivetrans and Matillions and and Stitch Data, my my old company. And then, you know, everybody from uh, Looker to Hex to Tableau, et cetera, kind of sitting on the top visualization layer with all these little mini layers like DBT for transformation in between. Now you've got a stack of companies, the leader of which, by the way, is, is valued at billions of dollars at any step of the way here that together are so much more powerful than this bundled stack. Um, and you see the same thing in e-commerce, right? Like headless e-commerce plus all these API-driven systems that are kind of driving, uh, like I know uh, uh, there's there's quite a few players on the Crossbeam network where uh, their entire go-to-market strategy is around teaming up with other companies with very, very, very high contact API driven interactions where people buy these products together. Um, you know, there's, you could even argue that like PRM is getting deconstructed a little bit in this way. And a lot of the leading emerging PRM providers are very API first and like, don't care about having 30 different sets of feature functionality they've developed in-house. What they're doing is partnering with the best of breed solutions at each piece and just owning their piece of it. Um, so anyway, this is a pattern that repeats over and over and over again by industry. And the implications for the partnership world are extremely vast because if you play ball inside of a company that's in one of those unbundled stacks, 
you have to be ecosystem first. You have to have that ecosystem interoperability in your DNA because not only is it your go-to-market strategy, it's your entire product strategy. Like you're building your, your company on the backs of that. So, you know, and that's, we do this across me, right? This is why we, uh, we built the partner cloud. We have been very API focused and kind of thought of ourselves as a, as a data platform, despite selling mostly to partner and, and sales folks, because if you follow the logical chain of events of what happens if everything goes right, that's where it all ends up, right? It's like the, how the data flows, who you partner with and, uh, how that helps you grow your business. So, uh, this is, uh, you know, the question is, when does the sine wave correct? And we go back into the bundling cycle. Um, you know, time will tell, but I think for now we're, 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 we're in a really, really exciting way that's, that puts ecosystems first. Well, and consumers aren't really interested in, in the approach of, say, the cable company where you have 500 channels, but you only watch 20. You know, customers yeah. don't want to pay for that. So I, This is a great example. Yeah, because we, we just had the Super Bowl uh, a little while ago here, um, and every single, you know, it was like dominated by commercials for different streaming services. And the, the conversation among the folks that I was with was, we've gone from this bundled monolithic buy your Comcast or Verizon solution. The great unbundling is happening, right? And now you've got this scattershot of 30 different streaming services and there's fatigue there too. And the question is, when is somebody gonna come along and just like bundle up the best of these? And you know, that you think about it hard enough and you're like, oh, you mean like the cable companies did like 40 years ago? <laughs> uh, but this is, this is the way these things go. And, uh, huge economic value gets created or at least at least disrupted in every one of those. So yeah, in, in software, it's no exception. Absolutely. Well, Bob, it's been great checking in with you. Thanks for yes, sharing your insights. Great to hang out. Yeah. Keep up, uh, keep up the good work and uh, look forward to the next show already. Cool. We'll do it soon. Cheers. All right, see you, buddy. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Partnernomics Show. Don't forget to subscribe to get the newest episodes at thepartnernomicsshow.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Iolite. To learn more about Iolite, visit iolitepro.com. And Partnernomics, the science of partnering. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics courses, coaching programs, and consulting services, visit partnernomics.com. See you on the next episode.